All right, so we're going to wrap up chapter one. And um, if you got your Bibles, we're going to read it in just a second. But I want to do just a real brief recap of last week. If you weren't here, we did an introduction to the book of Revelation. And basically, we established the fact that it was written somewhere near the end of the first century. It was written by a man named John. He mentions himself four times in this letter. I believe it's the apostle John. And, and I'll kind of give you some insight into why I think that. And I'm not alone. There are others who believe it's the Apostle John. And um, we know this based on chapter one, that he's living on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there by the uh, Roman emperor, and he's been exiled there for his faith in Christ, for teaching the gospel. Uh, and so this individual, whether he's John the apostle or John whoever, he has this vision that he's given by God. And he's, as we're going to see today, he's been commanded to write down everything that he sees and then give it to these seven churches and by extension to us. And he's writing to uh, these seven churches and they're representative of all churches then and now. And they're going through a lot of difficulty, lots of persecution. And so this, again, at the end of the first century, the church is spreading, it's growing. And these seven churches that he's writing to are all in what's now Turkey. It's Asia Minor. And they're in close proximity. They're all on Roman tra trade routes. They're pretty prominent cities. And they're under persecution. Persecution from the Romans, persecution from uh, the Gentiles. M most of the people in these churches were probably Gentile converts. And they were under persecution from other Gentiles because they had walked away from their pagan religions. And uh, those Jews who had converted to Christianity were also under persecution from other Jews. So lots of things going on. And the book, as we said last week, from chapter 4 to chapter 22 is all about the future. Future events that none of these people were going to live to see and we've yet to see. And, and yet, why, why is he writing to these seven churches? And the, the majority of the book, 80% of the book probably, is about things that haven't yet happened and won't happen. Well, as we said last week, and as we'll continue to say, this book is meant to encourage believers. It's meant to let us know that we don't have to worry about the future. Daniel Aiken is one of the commentators that I used in studying for this, and, and I like what he says about that. Revelation is the present addressed through parallels with the future. So John is being given this vision, told to send it to these seven churches who are living in the present, his present, about things happening in the future. John's readers were being asked to identify with the people at the end of history and gain perspective for their present suffering through the future trials of God's people. So he's, he's allowed to see into the future. He's allowed to see events that are taking place way distant in the future, distant from us. And we're given the opportunity to see the parallels, what's happening then and what's happening now. None of us is really, we're not going through much persecution, if we're honest. You know, none of us has probably been fired for their faith. Uh, you may have been fired for a lot of reasons. It, it wasn't because you're a Christian, it's because you're a jerk um, or, or you don't work hard. But we rarely get persecuted for our faith. Um, there are people around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. And, and so it's real, it's existing, it's just not real existent here and now. I think it's going to increase over the years. I think we're going to find that we are persecuted for our faith if we truly live out our faith. But in this period of time, when these letters are sent, they were going through difficulty. And so he, 
God is giving John insight into the future to give these people encouragement during the trials that they're going through. So we want to read these verses. We're going to read verses 9 through 20. So if you have your Bible, open them up. It'll be on the screen. But remember, this, this is the only book I know of in the Bible that comes with a blessing to whoever reads it. And I'm not going to miss a blessing when I can have one. So I'm going to read it. You're going to hear it. You get a blessing. And if we all obey it, we get a third blessing. So here's what it says. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength." When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So chapter one, verses nine through 20, it's starting to get weird. Um, he's, he's starting to see some things that, that remind us of why we avoid the book of Revelation. Um, bizarre stuff, strange stuff, weird stuff. What does it mean? What's he seeing? Why is he seeing it? And this is just the beginning, but it's interesting that this man named John introduces himself. And this is a letter we can't lose sight of the fact that this is a letter that is being sent to seven churches. And he is writing it, but he's not the author of it, right? He's, he's more like a secretary. He's writing down what he sees, what he's being shown by God, by the Holy Spirit, and by Christ. But he writes these people, and he introduces himself at the beginning of the letter, and he says, hey, I'm John. And I, again, I think he's John the apostle, but he doesn't say that. He says, I'm John, your brother. And he says, I'm your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he, he does this kind of weird introduction about who he is, but he, he tries to get them to understand, hey, I'm, I'm one of you. We're in this together. Now, remember, where is he? He's on the island of Patmos. Why is he on the island of Patmos? He's not there for a vacation. If you want to see what the island of Patmos looks like, Google it, and you'll see that it's a rock. It's not very big and it's very ugly. Uh, it was a horrible place to live, especially in exile. He was a prisoner. And so he's going through his own form of persecution. And he says, I am your brother. He doesn't say I'm an apostle. He says, I'm your brother. So he's not speaking to them out of authority because guess what? At this point, he has no authority because all the authority is coming from who? Jesus Christ, the very person he's seeing in this vision. So he's not writing as authoritative. He's not like Paul writing, I'm Paul, an apostle, and listen to what I have to say. He's a brother, and he's saying, hey, I'm just one of you, and I've been told to tell you this, to show you this. 
So he's their brother. Then he says, I'm your partner. And this is an interesting word in the original language because it has this idea of I'm, I'm a participant in the, what you're going through. Well, what are they going through? Persecution, tribulation, and trial. And so he says, I'm sharing in what you're sharing in. Again, he's a prisoner on Patmos writing to churches, seven different churches, all going through some form of persecution. And he's saying, hey, we're in this together, guys. I get what you're going through. And he describes himself as a joint partner in three different areas, tribulation, the kingdom, and patient endurance. What do these things mean? Well, tribulation is pretty obvious. It's, it's trials, persecution, trouble, difficulty. These people were facing difficulty, financial difficulty. Uh, many of them probably lost their jobs because they came to faith in Christ. Many of them were ostracized from their own families because of their faith in Christ. And so he says, we're in this together. I understand your tribulation. I'm going through tribulation. But the whole point of this book is, don't worry. There's no reason to worry about now or about the future. Then he says, the kingdom, this idea that you are a part of a kingdom and you're priests within that kingdom. And that's significant because in Revelation 1, 5, and 6, it says, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, a kingdom of priests. Now, anytime we read a passage like this and we hear that we are priests, we're a holy nation set apart by God. I know it goes through your brain because it's what always went through my brain before I became a pastor. And that's that, well, that's somebody else's job. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an advertising executive. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm a bricklayer. I'm a plumber. Whatever you are, you tend to think, well, I'm not a priest. I'm, I'm just a layman. You know, there really is no model for that in the scriptures. Yes, there were men who led churches, but everyone was expected to act as a priest in the early church. Every believer's a priest. And so this idea that you are made part of this kingdom and you're a priest within this kingdom means you have responsibilities to your family, your children, your wife, your grandkids, great-grandkids if you have them, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to fellow members, the men around your table. You are a priest. And we all need to take that responsibility seriously. Then he talks about endurance. I'm your partner in endurance. And again, this is going to be significant because what we see in chapters 4 through 22 are seven years of incredible suffering on this planet, like nothing we've ever seen before. And, and there are going to be people who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation who are going to have to endure incredible difficulty. And again, it's going on now, but not to the degree and not globally like it's going to be going on during those seven years. And so what we see is him calling them to endurance. It's, it's unwavering commitment to the cause. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't let go of the, the pressure that's been placed on you by God. Carry it proudly and carry it in community. We're meant to do this together as a body, not do it alone. So the only way you and I can bear up under pressure is if we open up about that pressure. And one of the reasons we put you at tables is so that you will have at least a handful of guys that you can get to know over these next weeks and share your heart, share what you're struggling with, share about your marriage, your finances, whatever it is, where somebody can bear up with you and help you during this. 
Because what John is telling them is, you know what? You're going to need to have endurance. You're going to need to carry on. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give in. Run, as Paul said, the race to finish. You want to finish well, guys. And you may think, well, that guy over there is closer to the end of the race than I am because I can tell by looking at him. You know, he, he looks worn out. He looks tired. He's, he's out of breath. He's lost all his hair. He's at the end of his race. You know what? You could die tomorrow. You could be 40 and die today. You don't know when your race ends, but you want to end it well. And I think that's what John is trying to tell them. Finish this race well. Endure. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, and this is one of the chapters we're going to look at all throughout this series is we're going to go back to the New Testament, things that Jesus said. We're going to go back to Daniel, Isaiah. Well, Jesus said this to the disciples. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, speaking to his disciples, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Don't you know that made them feel really good? You know what? Are you kidding me? Well, he's not done. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This was bad news, good news to these guys. And he's telling them, this is, this is a prophetic passage. And he's telling his disciples about things that are going to happen in the near future and things are going to happen in the distant future. So when he says, you're going to go through tribulation, every one of those guys did, including John. Tradition holds that most, if not all of the disciples, died martyrs' deaths. So they went through tribulation. They were ostracized. They were, um, many of them, beaten and stoned and arrested. And all kinds of things happened to them. But he's also talking about the distant future, about the end times about what we're going to be studying over these next weeks. But what does he say at the end? The one who endures to the end will be saved. This is not saying or teaching that you can lose your salvation. What Jesus is telling you is if you truly are one of his, you will endure. You'll make it to the end. By whose strength? Yours? No. By the Holy Spirit's strength. You will make it to the end. That doesn't mean you won't have moments of falling away. It doesn't mean you won't have moments where you don't live quite like you should live, with your, where, you're not, where you're unfaithful. Those moments will come, but you will endure. If you don't endure, you never were saved, is really what he's telling us. See, nothing in this book should scare you unless you're not saved. And if you're not saved, it should scare you. But he's writing to believers. He's writing to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, guess what? Everything's going to be okay. And John is telling him, and I'm in it with you. I know exactly what you're going through. And so he tells them that I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what does that mean? You know, there are so many opinions on this one little statement. And, and commentators agree and disagree. And they, they disagree on even what the Lord's day means. You know, I read that and I go, well, okay, what, what could the Lord's day mean? Well, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, but I think it might mean the Lord's day. <laughs> What's the Lord's day? It's the, the day on which the church worshiped, Sunday. And, and ever since Jesus arose and ascended back on high, the church began to worship on Sunday, not Saturday. 
And that became their Sabbath. It, it separated and differentiated them from the Jewish worship. They worshiped on Sunday. And so I think he's just saying it was a Sunday and I was in the spirit. Now, what does it mean to be in the spirit? I have no idea. Especially based on what he's about to say to us. Because I've never been in the spirit like this guy was in the spirit. And, and I have the spirit. I know what it's like to be indwelled by the spirit. I think there's been times when I've been spoken to by the spirit, but not like what this guy's going to go through. But he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So four different times in this book, he makes this statement. And all four times, it's associated with a really bizarre vision. Now, again, I can't sit here and tell you that, well, I've been in the spirit. I haven't, not like this. Not, I've never seen what he's seen. As a matter of fact, I know of nobody except maybe Daniel and a few other of the Old Testament prophets who saw things similar to what he saw, but not to the degree that he saw. I mean, he saw incredible things, bizarre things. So somehow on the Sabbath, he's inspired by the spirit to see things that nobody's ever seen before. And then he's told what to do write it in a book. But first he hears this, this sound. He says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, like appears eight different times in these verses. So eight times in these verses, he uses the word like, and he's going to use it probably 85 different times in the entire book from chapters four on. And it's his attempt to, to describe the indescribable. He, he's at a loss for words. It was like a trumpet. Now, what did it sound like? Well, I'm guessing it sounded like a trumpet, but he recognizes it as a voice. It was loud. It was probably kind of scary in a sense. And, and I think he's using trumpet because in that context, in that day and age, the trumpet was used to herald things. It was loud. It was to call the people to battle. It was to call people to worship. And so he hears something and it's loud, it's piercing. And he says, it was kind of like a trumpet, but it was obviously a voice. And so we're going to see this over and over again as we move through these chapters that he's always, you know, it was like this, it was like that. As a matter of fact, we just read, I saw someone and he looked like this. It's his best attempt to describe what he's seeing. And he's told to write what you see in a book and send it. So this is his commission. So he, he's going to have this vision and he's told exactly what he's supposed to do. Write everything you see in here and put it in writing for others to see, especially these, these seven churches. But we know this, that like all the letters that were written by Paul and Peter and others, they were sent to particular churches or individuals, and then they were circulated. They went to other churches. So while seven churches are going to initially get this document, it's going to go to other churches, the church in Jerusalem and the church in Corinth. It's going to get spread out. And now we have it 2000 plus years later, but he's, he's to write everything that he sees and hears. So if you're like John and you heard something that sounded like a trumpet, but it was a voice and it was behind you, what would you do? Well, I'd run, but he turned around. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. He's curious. He wants to know, who is this? It's obviously authoritative because it sounds like a trumpet. It's loud. It's piercing. It's gotten his attention. So he now wants to know, who is it? And this is where it gets kind of squirrely. 
and he starts seeing some really bizarre things. The, f- the first thing is, I want to see the source. Then he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. And he tells us what those are, and we're going to kind of blow past it at this moment, because that, that's exactly what he does. He says, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands, but then he turns and he goes, and someone like a son of man. So he goes right past the lampstands and he sees this individual and he describes him as someone like a son of man. Why is that significant? Why is that important? Why does he not even think about the golden lampstands? Well, it's obviously because what he sees and what he describes is something that is far more attention getting than lampstands. He sees this individual and there's something about him because as he begins to describe him, he's, he's describing as best he can what he sees. And it's this individual. And I think at this point in time, if it is the apostle John, I don't think he recognizes who it is because of the way he appears. And it's interesting that Jesus in the gospels almost always referred to himself by this name, the son of man. And so it's, it's, it's important for us to understand why is that arriving here at this point in the very first chapter of this book. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That's how he always referred to himself. The son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He doesn't say the son of God. He says the son of man. He also says in Matthew chapter 12, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Why is this important? Because Jesus in those verses is trying to get his disciples to understand that I am the incarnate God. I am God in human flesh. I'm human. Now they had no problem seeing his humanity. What they were going to have to wrestle with and what the Pharisees wrestled with and totally rejected was his deity. But why is his humanity important to us? Because if he didn't take on human flesh, then he couldn't take, take on our sin debt. He would not have been a proper sacrifice for my sins and your sins. We know from, from Paul's words that the sacrifice of blood, the blood of goats and bulls and lambs was not sufficient to eradicate our sin debt. It was temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. It had to be a man. A man had to die in my place and your place. And so his humanity is huge. So the first thing that John sees when he opens his eyes and he sees this thing, he he says, it was like a son of man and his sacrificial death as a man is key to this whole book. He came, he died, he rose again, he went back to heaven, and he's coming back. But he's not coming back what is a sacrifice. He's coming back as the Redeemer. He's coming back as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We know from Philippians 2, he, Jesus, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You're all familiar with this verse. But when we read this verse, we really don't get the weight that Paul is putting into it. Because for us, Jesus taking on human flesh wasn't that big a deal. It it just, yeah, okay, he became a man. What's the big deal? Years ago, when, when my wife and I were first married, we were living in a little duplex 
and our best friends lived on the other side of the duplex. And, uh, but we weren't the only occupants of the duplex. It was filled with roaches. And so every morning when I get up and turn on the light to make coffee in the kitchen, the walls would move. I mean, it was, it was the most disgusting sight of your life. I mean, literally you turn on the lights and they're just, they would scatter. And we're talking the big one inch cockroaches. And I bombed that house relentlessly. I, I'm lucky to be alive. Um, I do have a big bump on my back, but um, we couldn't get rid of the roaches. And I remember I was reading this passage one day. And as I was reading it, I was blowing past it like I usually did. And it was almost like God spoke to me. I was in the spirit. And, and he, he, said, he said, wait a minute, you don't get this. And it's, it, was, it was a really weird occasion because here's what went through my mind. I, I just thought, and I, it was like he said, I want you to be my emissary to roaches. I was like, no. No way. They're disgusting. They're dirty. They carry disease. They go places they shouldn't go. They don't deserve to be here. They, they, and I, no, I don't want that. And he goes, no, you're, you're going to be my ambassador to roaches. Not only that, you're going to become a roach. What? I don't want to be a roach. Have you seen roaches? I don't want to take on roach form. No, you're going to become a roach. Oh, and you're, you're going to die at the hand of roaches. They don't have hands, but you're going to die at the hand of roaches. You're going to die so that they can be redeemed. That's the first time I ever grasped the reality of what it meant for Jesus to take on human flesh. Now, that may offend you. Good. It should, because you know what? He, it was a major step down for the King of Kings, the Son of God, deity to take on humanity and come and live with us. And when you look at what they did to him and what he did on behalf of us, it's amazing. See, his humanity is huge. It's critical. It's crucial. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like this. Hey, go look in the mirror. God took on this. I don't know what Jesus looked like, but I guarantee he looked better before he took that on because he took on humanity. And it says, and in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So John, the very first thing he says is, I saw someone like a son of man. He looked human. But he's also going to understand that there's more to his humanity than just his humanity. Because we have to go back to the book of Daniel. Listen to what Daniel says in his vision when he was in the spirit. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, is this true today? In other words, are every people group of every language and every nation giving him glory? No. The answer is no, if you're struggling. So what does that mean? This is yet to be fulfilled. That does not mean that Jesus Christ is not a king. That does not mean that we're not part of a kingdom, but that kingdom has not been yet established on this earth. It will be. It's 
partly, but not fully. See, he's king, but not everyone's acknowledging him as king. He's king, but he's not yet sitting on the throne, the earthly throne that will be established in Jerusalem. And so this is a vision of Daniel, but what does he say? I saw someone like the son of man. He's seeing Jesus. And this is identifying Jesus as the Messiah. See, the disciples knew the Messiah would be a man. It's what every Jew expected. What they didn't expect was that he was going to be the God-man. And that was part of what Jesus was always trying to get them to understand through his miracles, through his teaching, by, by everything he said about the kingdom of God. But Jesus was the Messiah. He was the God-man. And he's glorified. See, Daniel and John are both seeing something very similar. They're seeing this man who's in a glorified state. And the description of John lets us see that. So here's what he says. He's wearing this long robe with a golden sash. It's it's a picture of somebody in authority. It's, It's similar to what a king would wear, but it's also similar to what the high priest wore. He wore a white robe that went all the way to the ground and he had a golden sash. His hair is white like wool. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice sounds like roaring uh, waters. He's holding seven stars in his right hand and he's got a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now that's weird. That's bizarre. And you can't look at that and go, well, that's good news. That looks great. It's kind of weird. It's kind of scary. And then his face shone like the sun. This is what it looked like. No, it didn't. This looks like Barry Gibb with a bad hair dye. Okay? I, I love it when people try to illustrate these scenes from Book of Revelation. Don't waste your time. I have no idea what, what John saw. And you can see how hard it was for him to describe it because he keeps seeing like. It was like his hair was like, his hair face was like. He, he doesn't know how to describe what he saw, but he saw something significant. And he's seeing someone like the son of man, but everything he describes is really identifying Jesus as deity. His robe, his hair, his, everything about him. Daniel 7, 9, Daniel said, I looked and thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Speaking of God, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. So here's Daniel seeing the ancient of days, God. Here's John seeing who? Jesus. And he looks the same. What's that tell us? He is God. He's the son of God. He is deity. He's part of the triune Godhead. Daniel goes on in chapter 10. I looked up and I bowled a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. Sounds very similar to what John saw. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. What's the point? He's the son of man, but he's also the son of God. And all these things John sees, remember this is his description of what he sees have a meaning. And, and the best we can tell from these, and there's a lot of different opinions, but the consensus seems to be that the white robe and golden sash represent his authority. He's a person of authority. And we're going to see because of John's reaction to what he sees, he gets it. He understands. His hair is white, and that was a sign of wisdom. See, the sad thing in our day and age, someone with old, with, who's got white hair and who is, quote, old, we think of as diminished you know, their, their days are numbered, their, their good days are behind them, and, you know, they don't have any wisdom. But in this culture, 
they looked at people with white hair and it was a sign of wisdom because of the years that they had lived on this planet. And so his hair was, was a sign of wisdom. His flaming eyes were penetrating. He sees into the hearts of men. He sees the truth. He knows what's going on. His feet are like burnished bronze. This is a description of judgment, like a king. And when a king uh, sat, he sat on a throne. It was always elevated, and you sat beneath his feet. You were under him. And so Jesus is a God, and he's the God of judgment. His voice is like roaring waters. It's, a, it's power. When he speaks, things happen. You read the New Testament. I'm blogging my way through Matthew right now. And over and over again, Jesus speaks and calms the water. Jesus speaks and people raise from the dead. Jesus speaks and people's eyes are healed. Jesus speaks and amazing things happen because he has power just with his voice. He's holding seven stars. And we're going to find out more about those next week. But it's control. He's got him in his right hand. The right hand was always the, the place of power. That's why you wanted to sit at the king's right hand because that was his power hand. But it also is care. He's holding them. And we're going to find out who he's holding next week. And he's got this sword coming out of his mouth, which we would think is judgment. It's, it's a sword. Well, no, it's really protection. He speaks on behalf of his people. He causes things to happen against those who would harm his people. And one of the things we're going to see in this book is that Jesus Christ is protecting many of his people who come to faith during the tribulation. And he's doing it through his words. And then finally, his face shone like the sun. He's got glory. Okay. This is his description, John's description of what he sees. And what does he do? He fell at his feet much like we see Isaiah do, much like we see Moses do, Daniel do. He falls at his feet. Why? Because he's petrified. He's scared to death because he sees God, a man who looks like God. He looks like the ancient of days and he's scared. And I think at this point, there's a reminder. If it is the apostle John, which I believe him to be, I think he has deja vu because he remembers the transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. Remember what happened? And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. Before who? Peter, James, and John. They were the only three who got to see this, and John was one of them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, what did they do? They fell on their face and were terrified. So I think at this point in time, he recognized that's Jesus. That's, that's the one I walked with. That's the one I talked with. That's the one whose chest I laid my head on at the last supper. This is Jesus. This, but he saw him as a son of man and he saw him as God. And it caused him to worship. It caused him to literally faint in front of him. But Jesus reaches out and he lays his hand on him and he says, fear not. Literally stop fearing. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus has to tell him, stop fearing. See, you're looking at this image and you're scared to wits out of this image because you see authority and you see judgment and you see power and you see, and it scares you. I don't want to scare you. I want to comfort you. So stop fearing. And then he tells him why he should stop fearing. He says, I'm the first and the last. Why should that bring him comfort? 
Because God said of himself, I am he, I am the first, I am the last. What Jesus is saying is, I'm God, but don't fear me. That's your hope. It's because I'm God that I'm here. It's because I'm God that I came. It's because of God that I died. It's because of God that I rose again. It's because I'm God that I'm coming again. Don't fear. Stop fearing. God says in Isaiah 44, 6, the Lord says, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Jesus, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. That should bring you hope. I heard a, a podcast driving in this morning by Albert Moeller, and he was talking about the fact that there is a new group in America. They're not really new, but they've now designated themselves as a new group, and they're called secularists. And these are people who refuse to align themselves with any denomination or religious affiliation. And so they're just secularists. It doesn't mean they don't believe in God. It doesn't really mean they believe in Jesus or Allah, or, but they're secularists. And in 2016, they represented 14% of the population. This year, they've already reached 25%. They're, they're people who don't really want to acknowledge that God is God, that Jesus is God, and it's growing exponentially. See, that's what we're dealing with. And they, what does Jesus tell them? I am the first and the last. You have nothing to worry about. Then he says, I'm the living one. He says, I died. But guess what? I rose again and I'm alive forevermore. That should bring us comfort. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And guys, that's our hope. If he's alive, guess what? There is an eternity. There is a future for you and I. And he was reminding John, and then John, by extension, is reminding these people that, hey, he's God. He died, but he's alive. God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. See, that's my hope. He's no longer in the tomb. If he's in the tomb, let's go home. He's a martyr. He's not a messiah but he, he rose again. I'm alive forevermore. And then he makes this strange statement. He says, I have the keys of death in Hades and I would love to do a survey, but we don't have time and have every one of you write down what you think this means. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I've read so many different commentators and for every commentator, there's a different opinion of what this means, but I think it's pretty simple. And I've given you an article to read, and it's a pretty lengthy article. It's actually a series of short articles on this topic of death, Hades, Gehenna, uh, the grave, hell, Sheol, all these words we see in the Bible that we make synonyms for the same thing, and they're not. And because we make them synonyms, we read passages and we don't understand them and we get confused. So I really encourage you to take the time to read that article because it'll help you understand, but I'm going to try to explain what I think this means when he says, I have the keys of death in Hades. What's he talking about? Death is almost always a reference to what's happens, what happens to this body. You're going to die. Hope that's not a shock. You're going to die. This body is in the process of dying every morning you wake up, some faster than others, but you're going to die. So death is the condition that will ultimately happen to every one of our bodies. We know from this in Corinthians, our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. This body's not meant for heaven. It can barely exist here. So we get a new body, praise the Lord. What's it gonna look like? Have no clue. 
Am I going to be this age in heaven for the rest of my life? Don't know. Is it going to look like this? Hope not. Okay. I don't know if your child dies at eight, are they eight for the rest of eternity? I don't know. Don't think so, but I can't prove it. I don't know. All I know is that we get a new body. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, this earthly tent we live in is going to be taken down. That's when we die, we leave this earthly body. See, when you die, your body goes in the grave and your soul goes somewhere else. There's a separation that takes place for everybody, everybody who dies. And we'll get a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. So death is a reference to what happens to us physically. Hades is what happens to those outside of Christ spiritually. Where does everybody who dies outside of Christ go? Well, most of you would say, hell, you're wrong. See, I thought that for most of my adult life and all of my childhood because I was told if you don't accept Christ, you're going to hell. Ultimately, that's right, but it's not all right. Because what happens is when you die outside of Christ, you don't go to hell. There's no one in hell right now. It's empty. And we're going to see at the end of Revelation, it gets filled with the Antichrist. It gets filled with the false prophet. It's going to ultimately have Satan in there. And it's going to have every person after the great white throne judgment who gets sent there by God and by Jesus Christ. But if you're not in Christ, what happens? You die, your body goes in the grave, goes into a crematorium, whatever happens to it, your soul goes to Hades. It's separated. Hades is the equivalent of the Old Testament concept of Sheol. It's a holding place. It's not purgatory. Okay, if you have a Catholic background, this is not proof of purgatory. Purgatory, in a Catholic sense, is you go to purgatory and you have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years to get your act together to eventually go to heaven. Nobody gets out of Hades. You go to Hades, you stay in Hades. You're judged, you go to hell, eternal torment. Okay. And we'll talk more about that in the future, but here's what it says in Psalm 16, which is a messianic passage. This is Jesus speaking prophetically. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon God. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy one see corruption. What is this passage saying? Jesus died because he was human. He went into a grave, but his body did not corrupt. It didn't decay. Okay. That's significant. He was not separated from his body like happens to all of us. He didn't go to Hades. He didn't go to hell. Some of you believe that because you think that's what the scriptures teach, but that's out of the apostles creed, not scripture. Jesus did not descend into hell. He, it's just not taught in scripture. His body and his soul remain together and he rose again and he gained victory over what? Death, decay, separation, His body and soul stayed together. And guess what? One day you and I are going to get a reunited body and soul, but we're going to get a new body. See, we're meant to be both. We're not meant to be some disembodied force. We're meant to be complete body and soul. But he gave victory over death. Paul tells the Corinthians, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, physical death. 
And the law gives sin its power, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he holds the keys over death and Hades. See, here's the deal. You do not need to fear physical death. You will die, but you don't need to fear it. Why? Because you're going to be with him. You don't need to fear Hades because you're not going there if you're in Christ. You'll go to be with him in heaven. What did Jesus Christ say to the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me in paradise. See, when we die as believers, we go straight to be with him. Our soul goes to be with him. Those outside of Christ go to Hades, and it's a holding place. And they remain there until the great white throne judgment, which we'll study later. So here's the deal as we wrap this up. John sees this appearance of Jesus, and it scares him. But 17 through 18 is Jesus describing himself, his character. And it's meant to bring a removal of fear, give him peace and comfort. Because see, what Jesus describes is, I'm God, I'm eternal, I'm alive. I died, I paid for your sins, but I rose again. And guess what? I'm coming again. Don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of Hades. I have everything under control. Do not fear. And at the last thing he talks about it, he finally realizes, oh, and there are these lampstands. And we're told what they are. Here's the mystery. The seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the seven churches. And we'll unpack that this next week. But here's the deal. Do not fear. Do not worry. And God is going to tell these seven churches and the leaders of these seven churches why they shouldn't fear in spite of all that they're going through. So here's your discussion questions. Jesus had to tell John not to fear. Why? Well, what do you think it is when he looked and saw someone like a son of man and all that stuff that he saw, what caused him the greatest fear? And I know it's conjecture, but what would have scared you had you seen it? Why was he so scared at what he saw? Secondly, look at your handout and the meanings behind what John saw, you know, the white hair, the robe, all of that. Which one resonates with you? Either scares you or brings you comfort. Man, I love the fact that he's all wise. I love the fact that he's powerful. I love the fact that he's got me in his hand. And then finally, look back at Jesus' description in verses 17 through 18. Which of these attributes brings you the greatest peace and why? And that's the one I'd probably really rather you spend most of your time on. Because my goal, my hope for you and for me is that we would have peace when we walk out these doors, regardless of what happens to you today, regardless of what happens in the world. Your Savior is alive and well and in all control. Father, thank you for these men. Bless the time around the table. Speak to them. Encourage them. May they walk out enthused about the fact that they serve a God who is all-powerful. They have a Christ who is not only a man who died and rose again, but he's the Son of God. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's all-powerful, and one day he's coming back, and we can rest in that assurance. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.